0: You could almost call the original a black box if you cared to,
1: because these,
0: <laughs> I these see three what translators are clearly responding to whatever is in this black box in different ways and making interesting choices, but our role here is to consider those choices and why they're being made, not to speculate about what might be in the box.
1: poetry. I'm Anastasia, and I'm joined here by my two comrades-at-arms. Introduce yourselves, guys. Hi, I'm Sean.
2: I mainly study Victorian poetry.
0: I'm Isaac. I'm a poet and translator of Russian and Ukrainian.
1: So after the resounding success of our last episode with our, our first guest, Noel, thanks again for joining us. We're back to just the three of us again. But we're joined by many more poems this time because this week's episode is short poems. Rather than our normal setup where we do three poems, one selected by each of us, and we kind of chat about it for a while, this time we each got to select like three to five poems and we're going to chat about them for shorter increments. So rather than like a 15 to 20 minute conversation, we're going to do closer to like a five to 10 minute conversation about each poem. All right. Let's talk a little bit about what makes a short poem, guys, besides just fewer words on a page. Well,
0: I think it's appropriate that you brought up the fact that our last episode was on prose poems, because there's something about short poetry that runs counter to how prose poetry works. In a lot of the poems we looked at last time, the poet had a fair amount of time and space to play with in order to allow effects to sort of creep up on the reader. With very short poems, that isn't an option that the poet has. They have to immediately plunge you into whatever state the poem is going to get you into. So one of the things
2: that I think we're going to be thinking about a lot is uh, the different ways that um, a poem can seem like a meaningful chunk of composition while still being incredibly short. So, If we think about the short poem, one of the things that's initially weird about it is it's an incredibly iffy, vague definition. So if you say, like, uh, you know, a prose poem, you've got a specific formal feature that you're talking about. If you say, like, an occasional poem or even an anecdotal poem, even if you're referring to poems in ways that aren't, you know, solid traditions or genres, you know, those are still relatively definite ways of signaling a a kind of poem, where with a short poem, it could mean anything from, you know, like, one line to, I don't know, what, 10, 12, 15? Is a sonnet a short poem? Kind of, but also not necessarily. And so we're going to see, I think, a lot of different tactics for giving the feeling of a short poem.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great point. Sean, there's this kind of like ineffable quality to a short poem, because it feels like the thing that should define it is the number of lines or the number of words in the poem or the amount of space it takes up on a page. But in a lot of ways, I think you're right. There's a moment when you're looking at a sonnet that or you're reading a sonnet where a sonnet can feel like a very short poem, but can also feel like an extended poem. So I think that's a good way to kind of think about how we're framing this conversation is what kind of makes a short poem feel like a short poem besides just how many words or how many lines it's it's composed of
0: you could relate that back to the idea of the metagame that we discussed in the anecdotal episode where there's a the mere fact of a poem being short and then there's the derivative of that fact or the consequence of that fact there's the the game of writing short poems and then there's the metagame of alighting or accelerating cognitive movements that the reader experiences
1: Does that give us enough to kind of get started guys
0: so i thought a good starting point might be japanese short poetry that's one of the most venerable and one of the most influential short poetry traditions in the world especially influential for english language poets so what i thought i'd do to begin with is sneakily advance the translator agenda and bring in three different translations of one haiku by Basho that's widely regarded as sort of the haiku for haiku purists. It's the most common example you'll see in a textbook when you're being introduced to this form. It's sort of the the classic. Chestnut would be the curse, but I think that would be unfair. And of necessity, since none of us can read this poem in Japanese, we're going to be treating the translations as just variations on a theme, I think. We won't really be able to discuss the original.
2: All right, do you want to get us started?
0: Okay, so here is the first one. This is the Alan Watts translation. The old pond. A frog jumps in. Plop.
2: All right, so this is the Kenneth Rexroth translation. An old pond the sound of a diving frog.
1: And this is the Nobuyuki Yuasa translation. Breaking the silence of an ancient pond, a frog jumped into water, a deep resonance.
0: So what I would advance as the starting point for talking about why these translations are different is an effect of surprise, that each of them is trying to produce, but they use very different strategies to produce it. In the Alan Watts translation, that first one, we have the onomatopoeia of the frog hitting the water as the moment of surprise. A frog jumps in, plop. That's where we have that moment of being startled. In the Rexroth translation, there's a similar effect to what Williams did. There's a similar effect to what Williams did in To a Poor Old Woman, where you see... A bag of plums. You get to encounter it as a bag before you conceptualize it as a bag of plums. Here we have the sound line break of a diving frog. The surprise is not the sound, but is the contextualization of that sound. And then we have this third translation, which I view as less successful because it doesn't quite have that experience of surprise for me as a reader. It's not without aesthetic value. Certainly the final line, a deep resonance, does leave me with something. It makes me resound a little bit, but it doesn't make me hear that delightful, crisp sound in the way that the first two translations do.
1: Well, what's interesting is the uh, surprise almost comes at the beginning, right? With the breaking the silence, the moment of breaking kind of the silence that the poem itself comes out of it's kind of a little bit more aware of itself as a constructed experience rather than by kind of naming the metaphor that it's getting at, a deep resonance rather than kind of affecting the thing that then is metaphorically con- like referred to. The last poem is kind of more aware of itself as um, a construct and putting forward that constructedness rather than kind of obscuring it in the onomatopoeia or the kind of like surprise embedded in the middle of the poem.
2: In some ways, this feels like a perfect case study for thinking about not only short poetry but the pressure that space like number of words number of syllables number of lines puts on writing poetry because there's a a specific sort of event here that does happen in all three poems but the way that we experience it has to uh, undergo certain kind of subdivisions and distensions and you can really see in each of these poems how they each respond to the pressure of splitting the poem into two parts you know the first one uses a colon the other two use m dashes and the thing that really varies among them is where you put that sort of interruption so in the first one you have the old pond a frog jumps in colon plop but that's a very different way of doing it than saying an old pond m dash the sound of a diving frog or breaking the silence of an ancient pond a frog jumped into water M-Dash, a deep resonance. And one of the things that winds up happening is you create different groupings uh, among the items that you experience. So in one, you might have the old pond and the frog jumping at the same time, or in another, you might have the sound and the frog and the motion of the frog at the same time. And I think, so in that sense, you know, I is right to bring up the the bag of plums because there's a similar sort of game happening.
0: Yeah, to continue with that poem... I find your reading very persuasive, Anastasia, where you have the poem coming out of silence, and that's the silence that's broken, and that's where the surprise comes. That really makes me admire this translation a lot more. And I think there's a similar effect going on with the second line, breaking the silence, line break, of an ancient pond, as we would see with the paper bag in the Williams poem, where we have the silence being broken in this very abstract way That requires you to think about the poem as a text, requires you to think of it as an utterance that's coming out of silence. And then we have the moment of contextualization, breaking the silence, line break of an ancient pond.
2: Yeah, I mean, one way of saying that is that the Yuasa translation really gives you the experience of backforming something. So it's like if you do, you know, sort of engage with a frog jumping into a pond primarily in terms of the sound, then part of what that implies is that everything else is something that you're sort of reconstructing. So you you sort of hear this noise and you look and you understand that like what broke the silence, it happened over there at the ancient pond, a frog jumped into it. And then the last line, part of what's so wonderful about it is that it's grouping everything that came before it under the sign of the experience which has been transformed over the course of it. So initially, it's breaking the silence, just a noise. And then now, by the end of it, because you've spent this time reconstructing the event that created the noise, you now have a deep resonance, which is something more extended. It's more uh, sort of profound and, and uh, like, voluble than just, you know, something breaking the silence. So there's a there's a cool way in which it's kind of recreating the process of... of um, seeing a thing that you heard even though the thing is no longer there to be seen
0: it's a kind of integration one might say
1: yeah i like what you're saying kind of sean because of the way that the turn and the break kind of happens in this poem like i guess like in a sonnet we would call it kind of like a volta where that kind of occurs um in this poem it creates it kind of has that kind of distillation effect where we do like kind of like read it down into that last line but using that to kind of think about the Alan Watts translation, for example, one of the things that kind of drove me to think about was, does plop kind of operate in the same way? And I don't think it does. Instead, I don't want everything to become distilled into the onomatopoeia at the end, um, or as like kind of a gloss of what previously happened, which is kind of what I think you're suggesting for the UASO translation. But that's interesting because it feels like that kind of puts um, at least two different possibilities for thinking about these short poems, right, as a poem that, a short poem is like a moment to kind of show us how text fails to create or fails to render an experience, right? We, we know that a poem can never be a frog jumping into a pond, but it can try to kind of render the like false experience of that. Yeah, so Yuasa tries to, like, kind of get, make us aware of that. Whereas, like, Watts doesn't, like, the the short poem kind of gives us the opportunity to, to not have to kind of contend with that failure in a certain way, because there isn't as much space for it. Um, and it kind of seems to be more about, like, existing in that possibility that the poem might actually achieve, you know, the frog jumping into the
0: water. I think you could kind of mic drop there. So do we want to go on to the next poem?
2: Yeah, I'm, o- I'm okay with that. Yeah.
0: Great. So the next poem is a haiku that's not a translation. It's Jack Kerouac trying to write a haiku, and it's from a collection called American Haiku. He was extremely conscious of the context of what was happening and of the questions involved, and this is my personal favorite result from that experiment. Blackbird. No! Bluebird. Pear branch still jumping there's actually an alternate version of this poem that omits the word pear. So you just get blackbird. No, bluebird. Branch still jumping. And before I had my mind blown by that reading of that third translation of the Basho poem, I would have regarded that version that omits the word pear as the superior version of, because the effect of surprise is greater. But looking at it now, it adds a touch of integration to the proceedings because we have pair, line break, branch still jumping. There's that kind of contextualization or integration happening. So now I'm, I'm not so certain that I care to sound off about which of those versions was, would be better. Do, do you guys have any opinions on that?
2: I mean, the one thing that makes me think about is how if you ever get into a phase of writing short poems, Um, which I don't know who would ever do that. One of the things that happens is, like, you start getting obsessed with making it as short as possible. And there is a weird way in which, like, I think when you're looking at multiple versions, because you have the the kind of, like, informational benefit of having seen the longer versions, there's always going to be something that seems even more daring and, like, brilliantly achieved and Blossom-like about... The, the shorter version of it. And I think one of the things that sort of brings us to is, I mean, maybe one way of putting this is like, how many folds are you trying to get into a short poem? That when you are writing a poem of some length, it's just sort of perfectly understood that you're going to have the poem pull in different directions and try and balance out different effects. But when you get to a certain level of brevity, there's always that temptation to try and hit something that is some sort of unattainable height of brevity. One of the things that's weird about this example though is that it's already kind of flaunting that that you begin with black bird, no, bluebird. Even like the difference in spacing there feels kind of interesting because like blackbird is a is a it's a category of birds. It's not even like a, a serious category of birds. It's not like a genus. It's just sort of all of the birds that are black, as if we just sort of look and see that's a bird, it's black. And then bluebird is presented as, like, it's a specific kind of bird. It's all one word. There's no space there. I, obviously, for a podcast, this is not ideal, but, you know, <laughs> believe me. Um, and, and so it, it feels like the poem is, is already kind of playing around with that attempt to reconstruct an experience. And I don't know if I like it better with or without pear being there. I don't know if I prefer knowing that it's a pear branch and having pair appear, you know, right before a line break. But I, I do think that it's already sort of experimenting with that that process of reconstructing an experience that's happening too fast to really take on.
1: I think one of the interesting things about this poem, to kind of build on what you were saying, Sean, about the fact that when you're trying to write a short poem, right, you you, you get kind of caught up in trying to make it as brief as possible. So to kind of include um, a revision in a short poem is really interesting, right? A um, poem that kind of is acting out the process of revising or acting out a mistake, or like a, a, like a misperception or something like that feels like a really interesting thing to um, include, since that would be the first thing that we would be inclined to kind of strike out um, as being unnecessary, a mistake or something that we're like not quite, we weren't quite sure of. So to kind of highlight that as the turn in the poem feels useful, It also kind of makes the shifts. I like that you call them folds. It gives a couple of other possible folds, right? Because if Blackbird gets revised with the no, um, Bluebird almost for a moment becomes revised by pair before pair becomes a way of categorizing or like further defining the branch still jumping on the next line. So there are these funny ways that it kind of asks you to reform or refold that language.
0: It's very interesting how much we're talking about turns or folds, or putting it very abstractly, moments where you compare one chunk of language in a poem to another chunk of language in the poem, and there's a crackle that happens in that comparison. There's a shift in your expectations, or a recontextualization, or a surprise, or something of that matter. That's perhaps a little bit counterintuitive if. In a vacuum, you were to imagine what a short poem would be. You might imagine a poem that has to be very much of one piece. It has to be a perfect little pebble, this little textureless calculus that you just fling at the reader's mind. But what we're noticing here is that it seems to be just the opposite. It has to be a hinge, but it has to be the smallest hinge possible.
1: Yes, exactly. And I think that's so interesting based on the fact that we were kind of doing this in relation to the prose poem episode, because the prose poem episode, one of the things we kept bringing up was the way that different kinds of language kind of rubbed up against another one, right? If you don't have the line break, it becomes much more important to pay attention to the way a question runs next to an assertion or something like that. And it's funny that ultimately that kind of feels like some of the same tricks that are kind of at play here, but in like much shorter form. And it also is feels more fun because things like no, or plop, feel so much more charged in the short space because that turn feels more sudden and feels more charged because there aren't as many of them to kind of like hold on to. You kind of have to like gather your chips or whatever and hoard them.
0: Well, we just seem to be ending these conversations on Anastasia mic drops and I love that. So let's do the next poem.
2: Yeah, let's keep it rolling.
0: This is another Rexroth translation, but it's not of a haiku. White chrysanthemum is disguised by the first frost if i wanted to pick one i could find it only by chance so in the terms that we've been using i'd say that this is a very pleasing example of integration of sensory data or units of meaning, and the main tentpole for that argument would be that the fact that the chrysanthemum is white on the first line is just an aesthetic detail that lets me picture it. And you know, you could you could dig into what that particular color means if you cared to, if you had nothing better to do. But really, it's just I'm picturing this chrysanthemum. I need to see its color. But then by the end of the poem, the color of the chrysanthemum has been freighted with meaning by being put in a new context, and that's the turn or the hinge.
2: Yeah, because initially you might try and engage the whiteness of the chrysanthemum at, like, a a symbolic level, and you, you still can, but it feels like one of the things that it's playing out is that the givenness of the chrysanthemum as, like, an object in a poem is being really messed up by the emerging context in which it's completely buried in snow. There's a way in which like often flowers and poems, and I'm sure this works differently in different historical moments and different kind of contexts, they can very much feel like abstractions. And here it sort of starts with that possibility. And then by the end of it, you might still freight it with additional meaning. And it might be that if I knew more about the context, I would know more about the significance. But it's like the ostensible foreground is overrun by the background of the poem.
1: Right. Well, and that that happens again with the new sentence, right? If I wanted to pick one, I could find it only by chance because the chrysanthemum gets obscured by frost. And then the chrysanthemum and the frost gets kind of consumed by the metaphor of choosing something among many by chance, right? Um And it's interesting that that's actually kind of a similar build that uh, Sean kind of drew our attention to in the Yuasa translation of the first haiku, which also is interesting because that's, it's the same build. It's a similar build. It's a similar pattern in both of those poems. And they're both not freighted with the same kind of surprise element in the middle of the poem that Isaac was so drawn to in some of the other examples. So in some ways, to go back to what you were kind of saying, I think it was Isaac who was saying about like the folds being like These kind of like moments of like pressure up against one another and that we kind of expect our expectation or like for a short poem is that the short poem is going to be kind of smoother or like some kind of like wholly formed nugget pebble that gets thrown into our brains. I really liked that image. This in a lot of ways is kind of one of the smoothest of the ones that we've just read as is kind of that first poem that first uh, translation by Yuasa because they don't have that kind of element of surprise or that kind of fold or that break in the center that we've kind of identified in some of these other poems, or at least the break in the middle of this one is much more subtle at that period before we get to the if that feels like a much more subtle, kind of like smooth turn rather than a kind of break or a, a moment of real friction. Is that, I don't know. What do you guys think
0: about that? You could almost treat that as a prosaic, transition rather than a poetic transition it's perfectly logical that's exactly where a sentence break would go if this were prose there's there's nothing unusual about that transition
1: right which is why it kind of feels more uh, of a piece or something than like you know blackbird no you know bluebird does that kind of feels like a little bit more of a flip
2: it's one of those interesting cases where you have something, that is literally true but also is a metaphor so like my favorite example of this which i think i used in an earlier episode is like when dunn says no man is an island that's literally true like <laughs> no, no man it's an island but it's 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 still a metaphor and here you know i, I think this is kind of what isaac was getting at that like it, it could be a very prosaic transition it works dramatically and logically and yet there's sort of like in inescapable sense that there is a metaphorical significance to this that also happens to be just what is literally true about what we're looking at.
0: One way of describing the issues at play here might be that both the Basho poem, at least the first two translations, and the Kerouac American haiku were about reconstructing an experience that you haven't successfully processed in the same way that you would interact with a traumatic experience, but it's aesthetic rather than traumatic. It's surprise rather than trauma. But the effect in this last poem is different because the speaker isn't immediately groping after that moment of integration that will cause the experience to become experienceable or digestible. Instead, there's a larger order or a higher unity that emerges from the experience without the reader necessarily expecting it and without the speaker necessarily expecting it.
1: I think Isaac gets the mic drop on that one. Ah, yeah, uh, yeah, I get one. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Okay, so I think we're we're moving on along vaguely according to historical timeline. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not.
0: The geography is skipping around pretty wildly, that's for sure.
1: Yeah.
2: So... Uh- I think an interesting contrast would be to look at um, some short poems that are not really operating in in any particular strong short poem transition. I mean, they are short poems and they're operating in other traditions, uh, but the shortness feels more incidental for these. So I want to start with a poem by John Keats called This Living Hand. It's not even officially called that, this was found written on the backside of another manuscript, so it's kind of a strange poem in that regard. And, um, right, so. This living hand, now warm and capable of earnest grasping, would, if it were cold and in the icy silence of the tomb, so haunt thy days and chill thy dreaming nights that thou would wish thine own heart dry of blood so in my veins red life might stream again, and thou be conscience calmed. See, here it is, I hold it towards you.
1: That poem is so creepy.
2: So, I mean, one way we could think about this is, we could think about it as being a fragment poem, and there's a whole tradition in the Romantic period of people writing uh, poems that present themselves as, as found documents or poems that are sort of built around inscriptions uh, or ruins.
1: Really? I, I didn't know the, that. That's
2: so cool. Yeah, and so, like, one of the things that's, that's interesting about this is, you know, when we think about short poems, we've been talking a lot about sort of, like, um, short poems either aiming for a kind of perfect concision like a you know like like the the, the term we had is like a pebble thrown into your mind or poems uh, that have folds or or turns but that are causing those folds and turns to sort of like press up against each other and here one of the things that i think is happening is there is a coming to a point here and the coming to a point is this gesture of holding out this dead hand to you. And so the whole poem is kind of setting up a context in which the poem can tell you that there's this kind of ghostly dead hand reaching out to you and sufficiently set up the context that that will be a a kind of like fraught, terrifying moment as opposed to being just a kind of like hokey gesture or, or or even just maybe an empty gesture. So here there's a very literal kind of like building to a point and it's this sort of like index finger reaching out at you.
1: When you say building to a point, do you mean kind of like that we're building towards that last line or do you mean, are you trying to get at something else?
2: So two things. One of the things that I'm thinking about is how when we've been talking about short poems thus far, one of the things that we've been emphasizing is the extent to which they either have this kind of unity and concision or if they have concision without unity, the concision forces the twists and turns to feel more sharply juxtaposed and create a a kind of alternative to unity maybe. And part of what interests me about this poem is it winds up creating a certain feeling of unity and concision that's all structured around the the gesture that the poem is acting out, which is this kind of ghostly hand being reached out towards you. And I'm thinking about how uh, there's a term dyktik, which is a word whose meaning is dependent on its its, um, situation of use. So a classic example would be like I or here or now. These are words that mean completely different things depending on who's saying them or where or when it's being said. And... The phrase, this living hand, is a kind of deictic, but the hand that it's referring to is only there because the entire situation is being made real to us. So, like, this is a very short poem, never published, found in a text, which in some ways even amplifies the feeling of of haunting that it creates. And then when you read the poem, it's sort of creating a, a situation in which the hand has a sort of reality to it.
0: As a good new critic, I don't know where this poem was found or who wrote it or any of that. (laughs) But looking at this artifact that we found inside a meteor in the context of what you've just said, what I'm really lingering on is the line break between the second and third lines. This living hand, now warm and capable, line break, of earnest grasping, would, if it were cold, line break, and in the icy silence of the tomb, that is such a stakes-raising elaboration on the word cold, and it comes upon you so suddenly. I think that's the... Uh, we were kicking around a moment ago the idea of this poem building to something. It's it's certainly building to something, but it's each piece is being flung onto the structure rather than placed there, especially this one. And it's doing a lot of... Load bearing work for the structure that's ultimately going to emerge is the startling thing. This is not one brick is being thrown down very precipitously. This is the load bearing column is being thrust up out of the poem all of a sudden.
1: Yeah, this poem would be would have been an interesting one to do during like our enjambment episode, right? Because each line does kind of like kind of expand into the next one um, and get kind of re not resituated. It just gets like more more. It just becomes more with each line that kind of comes at after it. Um and that that kind of like accrual of meaning or that accrual of specificity or accrual of kind of like freightedness, weightedness, right? All of these potentialities for this hand, right? This living hand now warm and capable. Would if it were called that conditional and then kind of in even building more on that conditional and in the silence of that tomb right this is an even more like freighting that conditional even more that potential potentiality and then even further with the haunting right yeah totally and this is but this is very different this doesn't function the same way that the other poems that we've looked at so far do because it is kind of like Building, but it's funny that it builds, which seems to me to like kind of accrue mass. And the metaphor that Sean kind of gave us first was kind of like coming down to a point, um which feels more like kind of pull like kind of like pushing things out of the way or something so that we we have something more precise at the end. Um, it's funny how they both kind of feel really relevant and accurate when we're talking about this poem.
0: If one could think in a derivative enough way in an abstract enough way, one might be able to make the metaphor of building and the metaphor of coming to a point the same idea because they're both applying a process to this material in order to yield something that has logic, whether that logic be a structure is being heaped up or the unnecessary is being pared down and it's being refined to a point. There's still an analogous gesture going on. That's one. Two is, I really enjoyed it that when you were quoting that line, you left out the word icy, because that brings me back to our pair in the Kerouac haiku, because I really wish this poem didn't need to have the word icy. I, <laughs> I accept that it does. It, it certainly does, and Keats put it in there because the jump from cold and in the icy silence... Needs to be facilitated by the cold and the icy. That uh, thread needs to be available to connect them. But I just, I just dearly wish that it didn't need the word icy.
1: Why? Because you don't like the the sonic quality of icy, or because you don't want as many syllables? No, I there? love the
0: sonic quality of icy. No, sorry, I didn't mean to talk over you. I, I enjoyed the sonic quality of icy, but. Uh, logically or cognitively or in terms of this process of whether building or refining or the derivative of that or whatever we want to call it, I wish that two references to cold weren't necessary. I wish it could just be we've got the warm hand and we've got the cold hand and we didn't need to have the cold of the tomb brought in to put the cold hand in the cold tomb. Mm-hmm. I wish we could cut out that step and have this process still work. But I, I, you know, far be it for me to claim that I I know better than Keats. He is right that we need this word.
2: One of the things that strikes me about this and about the way that it's concision works, I love the line break at the end of the first line. So it's this living hand, now warm and capable, line break. That could be capable of anything. And if you just say, like, warm and capable, that's kind of giving yourself carte blanche, like... I'm alive, I can do anything, and what follows it is of earnest grasping, which is so, like, wonderfully, wonderfully pathetic, like, in both the original and the current meaning of that word, and one of the things that I think is so delightful about this poem is the speaker in this poem, or whoever's writing this fragment, could have imagined all of the things that he can do with his hand now that he's alive but instead of doing that and imagining this like potentially endless series of things that his capable hand could do he just says that it's capable of earnest grasping and then he imagines this other scenario which is going to be true forever because once he's dead and you've read this poem there is no escaping it (laughs) it this will follow you for the rest of eternity so, it's like, the shortness of it has this kind of wonderful, perverse quality where, like, you could think, like, well, I'm alive and my hand is warm and capable. Here are some things I could do with myself. And instead it's, I am going to do one thing with this, with this hand, which is haunt you for the rest of your life.
1: I think, I think that's it. I think we just haunt people for the rest of their lives with Keats' dead hand. <laughs> <sighs>
0: And he can have all my blood, for the record. He will use it better than I ever could.
2: <laughs> you want to do uh, you want to do the next one?
1: Yeah, let's do the next one.
2: Okay, so this is a, an Emily Dickinson poem. We've, we've done Emily Dickinson, and we've talked about Emily Dickinson a lot, but it would just feel wrong to do a, a episode on short poems without having an Emily Dickinson poem. And I think this is another interesting case where you arrive at a short poem um, for a really kind of idiosyncratic and distinct set of reasons. This is um, poem 1556 in a, in a, uh, the numbering of them. Uh, it's usually called Image of Light, Adieu. Image of Light, Adieu. Thanks for the interview. So long, so short, preceptor of the whole coeval, cardinal, impart, depart. So one of the contrasts that I'd like to make with the Keats poem is the way in which this is uh, on the one hand, incredibly kind of like um, flagrantly pat. So it's addressing an issue that was like, I don't know, a pretty big deal in the 19th century that like a lot of ink was spilled over. And, you know, you can write a uh, thousands of pages long epic poem about your crisis of faith if you're Herman Melville, or you can, like, have this incredibly nonchalant, you know, six-line, and they're not even long lines, sh- six-short-line poem. On the other hand, it's incredibly carefully contrived, um, so it has all these interesting rhymes, and it has these really tight little Metrical units. So there are points where you'll have two IMs back to back that are sonically very similar. So long, so short. In part, depart, and you have all of these sort of weird little slant rhymes coming along the way. So it feels like the kind of nonchalance or the sort of performed, you know, insouciance of it is really profoundly amplified by having it on the other hand be this incredibly carefully constructed miniature which is a really different effect to create with a short poem than the effects that we've seen thus far
1: yeah this one really plays the sound quality up in a way that we haven't gotten in many of the other poems we read partially because some of them were in translation but partially i don't know why i don't know why we haven't seen as much of it but this one really plays with how these words are going to play against each other. But what's interesting is, um, at least for me, this feels like a much longer poem than it actually is than I think some of the other ones do because of the different sounds. There's something about that that um, is very jarring for me as a reader, which then makes me think that the poem is kind of actually taking up more space and more length than it actually is. I don't know if you guys have kind of a similar reading experience.
2: I think that one reason for that is that it really puts you through your paces So it begins relatively manageable, and then by the time you get to the third line, it's already built up a sense of double meanings. When it says so long, that's a repetition of saying goodbye, but it also plays off so short. And then the next few lines, the preceptor of the whole, coeval cardinal, is doing something really weird. Because to say it's coeval is to say that it has the same duration, but then to say that it's preceptor of the whole suggests that it precedes the whole. And then to say cardinal feels like it's playing off the position of cardinal within a church, but also suggesting directionality. And that feels like it, it's in tension with coeval. And then similarly, when you get to impart, depart, it feels like it's mulling over the philosophical implications of the tension between a timeless creator and a timely world in a really compact way that's difficult to unravel. So even though it's really short, if you try to process what it is that you're reading, it's not inherently easy to break it apart.
1: Right, yeah um it doesn't kind of advertise those turns the way that some of the other poems do that we've looked at well it does advertise turns i don't know that doesn't quite capture what it is either Hmm. i
3: wasn't saying that it didn't advertise turns Mm -hmm. just that like i think there are a lot of turns i just think that like they're really demanding and they're
0: happening really fast
1: Mm mm-hmm Right, so then it becomes difficult to parse. What is happening on the like semantic level that kind of warrants each turn?
0: There's something about the punctuation and the syntax being so fragmented that we, these are very short lines and then we have the split in the middle of so long, so short, and we have every line ending with a dash creating these sort of super line breaks is how I'm treating them. These are line breaks that leave leave the language even more broken than they would under normal conditions. There's something about that that makes the experience of the turns radically different because the pieces that are meant to react with each other are a a lot smaller and B a lot more radically segregated from one another than they would be in a poem that didn't have these devices that dickinson is employing
3: if we don't have like a a, a, a profound end for this one i think you know Smarter minds than ours have been have been bested by Emily Dickinson.
0: <laughs> uh, it's really true, and I'm I'm staring at this as hard as I can, and I I cannot get any purchase to dismantle any of it. I can see that there is a machine. I can see that it's running. I can even see that it has very small gears but I cannot give you any of them. I I cannot pull one single gear out of this.
1: Yeah, I'm kind of in a similar situation. The only other thing that I think I kind of see happening is um, the adieu, the way that it kind of, the, the mode of address, Image of Light, adieu, thanks for the interview, that one, like, so those first two lines function as sort of a an address to this image of light or to to God or faith or whatever. And the remaining four lines don't. Um, so that's kind of one way that I am kind of able to kind of start splitting up the poem. And that's also where we start losing... Anything that kind of resembles a full sentence, right? Thanks for this interview could could function as a full sentence, but so long, so short, we can't do that. Coeval cardinal doesn't, impart, depart also doesn't. And preceptor of the whole, I guess could, but feels like it can't because it feels like we don't have enough information. So it feels like after we get that address and we're no longer in that mode of addressing someone anymore, not only do we lose like, the tone of addressing, we also lose all kind of, like, grammatical purchase.
0: So let's let's attack this on a very bare-bones level. In terms of getting grammatical purchase, the way I would treat these final four lines would be to treat them as a positives. Thanks for the interview. What is the interview? It's so long, so short. Perceptor of the whole. Okay, you can put a sentence break here. Thanks for the interview. So long, so short. Sentence break. Perceptor of the whole. What is the perceptor of the whole? He's a coeval cardinal. What does he have to do? He has to impart and depart.
3: Hmm. Interesting. That's, I think that's the way that I would understand it. And then what feels weird is the relationship of these things, like in time. Like I think in general it's true that like the first two lines feel like they're they're addressed at something and then you know so long so short feels descriptive although so long when you first read it feels like it's it's another idea but then it when you see so short it feels like no no it's it's descriptive and then preceptor of the whole coeval cardinal feel like they are possibly addressing something but it's hard to think in what sense and then impart depart feels like it's a it's an imperative but it's a weird imperative because it's like saying impart depart but what has just been implied to us is that that already happened that this kind of image of light you know whether it's a real image or not has come down and imparted something like you know in the way that you would impart wisdom during this brief interview and then it's departed and so it's hard to understand you know how address works in this poem which i think is completely tied into this whole issue of struggle or crisis of belief because the the function of address depends on whether or not you believe that you meaningfully coexist with this being that you're trying to address
0: so maybe swinging wide here, so there might be a way of reading this imperative where it's perhaps even a little bit petulantly commanding this cardinal to do what it was already doing, and what matters about this gesture is the fact that the speaker is trying to impute intentionality. It's, it's like the... Uh, The fox declaring that the grapes it can't climb to were probably sour anyway, but abstract that gesture of sort of, I'm not changing the empirical reality of this situation, but I'm imputing intentionality. I'm imposing my own internal order on it in some way in order to change how I interact and that could map on a crisis of faith trying to establish or question a relationship with the divine
2: another place we could see the petulance would just be image of light idea which already feels like really curt and kind of sassy as a way of addressing an eternal super being um and then i think the irony there sort of following on this this
3: idea of like imputing meaning where there's no difference in the outward situation is that with belief there could be a meaningful change just by, you know, um, taking on this kind of dismissive tone, but only if you believe that the thing you're dismissing is there. And so there's a kind of loop to it where like there either is nothing changed by taking on this sort of like, you know, curt, nonchalant sort of tone if, if the thing that you're dismissing isn't really available, I mean, even if you think it's there and it's just not available to you, then it's a thing. Uh, even if you believe that there's some sort of like divine being that's you know coeval with with uh, existence itself, it, it wouldn't mean anything to say you know so long. Um, it only it only is changing something if you believe that there's a reality to the being and your
0: and your relationship with the being. I think Sean gets a mic drop.
1: <laughs> Oof, about, Dickinson. Time. Such a beast.
0: <laughs> you get a mic drop on Dickinson. That's like 10 mic drops. Yeah,
1: you get 10 mic drop points.
0: Uh, scores will be assigned at the end of the podcast. <laughs> Vote now on your phones. Right. Uh,
2: all right. Pound time.
1: Let's pound it out.
2: Yeah, this is going to dark places.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't. No, no one say Pound town. <laughs> all right so i'm we're gonna we're going to pound and i'm gonna start with his imagist poems because it feels like they're kind of the testament to short poetry in the american modernist turn so i'm going to start with the classic one in a station of the metro in a station of the metro The apparition of these faces in the crowd petals on a wet, black bow.
0: The word apparition is working so differently here than it does in any other context I've ever encountered it in. The apparition of these faces in the crowd seems almost like it's a verbal noun right the act of the appearing of these faces in the crowd rather than the apparition being the thing that appears but neither of those is entirely satisfactory
1: i think what you kind of point out isaac is that it's it's kind of similar to the way that some of the expansion of meaning or the particularization of meaning happens in the keats poem over the course of lines This poem, I feel like that kind of qualification or like specification of meaning happens in the same line, right? With the apparition of the faces in the crowd. It feels like almost working backward, like you could almost have a line break from the apparition, line break of these faces, line break in the crowd. And it would kind of have a similar sort of effect where we get more and more information about this like kind of original unit of sense as it expands. But pound makes us notice that in one line because we only have two lines to work with
0: the breaking that's happening is semantic he's achieving semantically what a poet would generally achieve through the arrangement of lines and that's really startling
1: right so that by the time you do get the line break it can't kind of have the same kind of significance as we as we had seen in previous poems. Or like you say, right, this is what other po- poets do on the level of line breaks. The line break has to function wildly differently. Kind of like you were saying in the Dickinson poem, you get kind of a super line break with those dashes. There's almost the sense of a super line break with that colon, that this line break has to function totally differently to make this poem kind of move.
0: We talked in the line break episode about how separating two units of meaning puts them into dialogue with one another or makes them react with one another. Here it's as if the segregation between these two units of meaning on the two lines is so absolute that you just have proximity. The semicolon is an interesting choice for punctuation there because that would typically indicate here are two complete sentences Although the second line is not a complete sentence. It's just proximity. It's just, I'm going to put this image next to this image, and the reader's consciousness will do the rest of the work for me by trying to make these two interact with each other.
2: The first clause isn't an independent clause either, and I feel like that's one of the reasons that apparition feels like a verb noun, is because you have something that once you've read the entire poem feels like the most, maybe the nearest to being grammatically self-sufficient, but even that is not actually grammatically self-sufficient.
1: Yeah, that first line, because it isn't self-sufficient, it does reach up towards the title too. I think this is the only one actually that we've read so far of our short poems that really uses the title to make the poem run. You would think that because a short poem doesn't have as much language to work with, that a poet would rely on the title to kind of really push its agenda. And it's interesting that this is really the only one we've seen and, you know, spoiler alert, this is the only one we kind of look at that really uses that make its point.
2: Yeah. Like the poem would not work without the title the level of like frisson that you get from the image only works if you've been cued in almost as if in the past as something that you've almost forgotten that what you're looking at is people in front of a subway car and if you didn't have that this wouldn't be nearly as dynamic
0: we talked about deictic words a moment ago the apparition that that definite article on apparition is giving me all sorts of lovely trouble, and it seems dyktik to me in a way that's not immediately accessible, that can't immediately be glossed or interpreted. I'm furthering the translation agenda again. I'm thinking about if someone cared to translate this poem into Russian, which does not have articles, you would have to do something like that apparition or this apparition. I think if you were to just say the Russian word apparition, which is is verbal, like this is, and in many ways is readily interchangeable with apparition in English, something would be lost that could not be made good without putting in something deictic. Do you guys agree with that?
2: Yeah, and the deictic word is in, like, it's these faces, and there's a weird way in which the structure of this sort of disperses that feeling of you know, indexicality of, like, pointing at something over the entirety of the poem. Because it, it is a it is a weird thing where, like, you never especially feel like you're looking at the faces. At least that's my experience of the poem. But the faces is, like, the most anchoring thing in the poem. It's the, it's the part of the poem that's most, like, this, 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 this. Like, even the title is In A Station of the Metro, which is the most noncommittal way that you could possibly <laughs> allude to the fact that you're in a subway
0: station. Yeah, and so uh, to, to run this metaphor again with trying to translate this into Russian, you would have to say, in some station of metro. And then mm-hmm. the first line would have to be, this apparition of faces in crowd. The is interacting with the deictic quality of the these in a very provocative way. It's preventing the anchoring from being fully successful, I might argue, because the apparition is so foregrounded despite being so abstract. Does that make any sense? Yeah.
2: that I think one of the things that we've been getting at in a lot of different ways is that apparition could be like a, a cheap poet word here. It could be like a, you know, like it's ghostly, but it's not at all actually ghostly. It really is like a thing that that appears. And then it seems like part of what works here is that there's a a move from the first half of the poem, let's say to the second half, almost as if you counted up the syllables or words from an opening that's very general in a station of the Metro, the apparition, to abruptly becoming incredibly concrete, not only through the kind of deictic move of saying these faces, but also immediately slamming up against it, pedals on a wet black bow without any grammatical structure to tell you how or why that's appearing.
1: I'm really enjoying the way you guys were talking about the kind of hyper-specificity that happens with this kind of like chain of definite articles and with the dyctic these. Because in a station always feels so kind of ghostly to me and because of apparition feeling confusing in the sense that is it like a verb noun or is it like a n- noun noun the first line always kind of feels non-specific to me whereas petals on a wet black bow because of that spondy at the end and because of the staccato quality of those last three words and because petals is so specific and it it's such an easy thing to kind of visualize. Visualizing an apparition of a face in a crowd, I don't know how to do that. I don't know what an apparition looks like besides weird sparkly ghost thing. I don't I don't know. I have no idea what to do with that. So immediately the thing that's easiest to visualize is the petals on a wet black bow. So that feels way more specific, but you're exactly right that that's actually the least specific part linguistically of the poem it's really interesting how the qualities of the language running against each other almost like suggest their opposites. Petals on a wet black bough seems so much more specific to me, whereas the apparition of these faces in the crowd kind of runs together much more smoothly and is much more difficult to kind of visualize. So I'm much less, I I don't hang on to it as tightly.
0: The deictic quality of these is part of what's complicating That first line so much, I think, because it prompts the reader to interpret it as these particular faces in the crowd, not necessarily all of them. I don't think that's how it can most successfully be read, but that's certainly a way of reading it that is readily apparent and that the reader must interact with and then dismiss. And then on that second line, you're very right about the spondy at the end, I think, and there's a way in which word order is doing work that synergizes with that spondee because the bow comes at the very end of the poem. In a way, you could treat all of these other words, petals on a wet black bow, as elaborations or ornaments on this noun that we get at the end. But weirdly enough, perhaps this is because of the on being the second word, pedals on a wet black bow. I know that there's a continuation coming, and I know that this sentence well it's not a sentence, I know that this unit of sense will close to some extent because the on implies that I'm going to hear what these pedals are on. It's just remarkable that we can talk about the experience of moving from word to word in such a protracted way on such a short line in such a short poem. I mean, this is Wolfgang Eiser again. He talks about how the reader has a finite reading frame that they can only have so much of the text directly in front of the camera of their consciousness at any given moment. So what's happening in this poem is... Pound has reduced the scope of my reading frame to the point that I can click from word to word slowly enough to ask questions like this. That's really remarkable and it's unique to the microclimate of a short poem, I think.
1: I think that's a perfect segue to zooming out to talk about the poem as being a successful kind of short imagistic poem because it demands that you kind of zoom in. Superficially, it feels like the only trick of this poem is this kind of metaphor where like faces look like petals, right? Some faces stand out from a crowd in the way that petals on a black bow would make themselves more apparent, right? That like white against black or some kind of contrast. And then the game of this poem really comes down to just a metaphor. This is like this thing. These petals are like these faces. But that misses everything else that's kind of happening and building and being um, kind of asked to develop in this poem, if you just think of it on that kind of like larger level, because we have just like exactly what you're saying, Isaac, that this poem kind of invites you to kind of look at it on a much more micro level, which means that that larger thing is kind of less important, it almost gets obscured, you almost forget that that's actually what the larger engine of the kind of like brash engine of this poem is, is just this metaphor.
0: Cause if what this poem is trying to do is produce two images that are so self-evidently kin to one another, that putting them next to each other automatically makes that crackle of completion, you know, and Carson talks about the, metaphor being a circuit that's completed and the electricity jumps from one node to another. With these two images, that jump happens without the poet having to invite you to make it. Typically, a metaphor would have a like or an as to script that jump. Here, it's just the negative charge at one node must jump to the other node because they're proximate
1: you're name dropping all over the place in this episode but yes i agree with you
0: (laughs) i'm name dropping and i'm callbacking like hell i don't know why that's the that's the mood i'm in i do not know why
2: it's okay the callbacks will force people to listen to the earlier episodes do it yeah we've
0: got continuity these episodes are in a shared universe like the marvel movie
2: what this is like is, I've been told that it used to be in comic books. There would be a, like a footnote, and be like, "If you want to learn more about the Green Lantern, go read this other thing." <laughs> and so you'd have to like go like find a comic shop where someone had an old issue of the Green Lantern, and then like you'd have to fight them for it. I think is how it worked.
1: Okay, so now that we've kind of celebrated and fangirled, fanboyed over in a station of the metro, it might be time to look at one of Pound's less successful imagist experiments. So we're going to read The Bathtub. The Bathtub. As a bathtub lined with white porcelain, when the hot water gives or goes tepid, so is the slow cooling of our chivalrous passion. Oh, my much-praised but not altogether satisfactory lady,
0: So to go back to my first hack at those translations, what Pound seems to be going for here is surprise with that last line where we discover that the node that all of these images have been orbiting around is his lady, but it's unsuccessful because... A person is a hell of a pebble to throw into somebody's brain, and there's nothing about this that lets me encounter her as a person.
2: One of the things that occurs to me here is like Pound has, in addition to his images, poems, poems that are playing on the tradition of like the lover's complaint um, or of like um, troubadour song. And part of what feels so bizarre about this poem is it feels like there's this really weird thrusting together of an opening two lines that feel kind of imagist, you know, as a bathtub lined with white porcelain when the hot water gives or goes tepid. And then another two lines that feels like they're kind of really knowingly, kind of smugly being as, um, how do I put this? It's kind of flaunting how inelegant it is so is the slow cooling of our chivalrous passion, oh my much praised but not altogether satisfactory lady. It's this kind of like easy joke about like line three is sort of like slow cooling of our chivalrous passion and the fourth line is like much praised but not altogether satisfactory all hyphenated lady. Um, It feels like for a poem this short, you can see all of the moves and the moves all feel sufficiently obvious and on the nose that it, it's like three three wooden planks falling on each other <laughs>
0: <laughs> and he's like pointing at them and saying look these planks are falling right on each other and I pushed them and each plank says
2: I am satirizing love poetry. <laughs> <laughs> timber (laughs) (laughs) yes just so (laughs)
1: um yeah unlike the other poems right it feels like each of these moves doesn't really help me with any of the moves that came before it it's just like oh yes there's another move in this poem
2: (laughs) that's a really good way of putting it that it, it like you know the problem isn't that you have these like really big gestures it's that they feel like they're not interacting with each other in a, in a particularly interesting or exciting way.
1: Right. Like, so the big turn right is in the middle of the poem after the second line. So between when the water, when the hot water gives or goes tepid line break, so is the slow cooling of our children's passion. Um, That turn, that comma doesn't, we, d- we just know it's a turn because the tone shifts, um, but it doesn't kind of inform the turn. It's a parallel turn, like, grammatically to the previous one, and that there's, like, a comma at the end of the line. But it functions totally differently, and it doesn't help me think any-, any differently about how these words are kind of lined
0: up on the page. This is a noodle-armed weakling telegraphing his punches, is what it is. <laughs> They're going <laughs> to land, and it's not going to hurt, and I can see it a mile away. Yeah. So, I mean, I
2: will, like, one of the things that I I wonder about in this is what we could imagine could have been done with the first two lines. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: I mean, obviously, like, you know, you could take any poem and come up with, like, an infinite number of, of alternate versions or alternate poems. But if we just imagine we were looking at that opening image... Is that did that have potential? I guess is my question. So the opening image is like a bathtub lined with white porcelain, when the hot water gives or goes tepid. Uh, I assume gives or goes tepid could mean either drains out or or just gets you know gets tepid, gets warm or gets um, less hot. And then lined with white porcelain feels kind of interesting. And I guess it's sort of drawing your attention to the fact that there's like a surface that is not what the whole bathtub is made of. So what? Was there anything there, given that I think most of our disappointment comes with the second half of the poem?
1: That's a great provocative thing to ask, Sean. And I actually think that there is some potential in the beginning, because I think think you gloss a little quickly over the word gives, when the hot water gives, because water doesn't give. Um, So I like your suggestion that maybe it's that it's draining out, but... I think there's something interesting there and in having to recast how we think about water interacting with other things, especially in relationship yeah. to the lining, because you're right, the bathtub lined with white porcelain implies that there's two different things at play here, or two different substances that make up this tub, at least two different substances that make up this bathtub. But there's this moment, right, where the water feels like it's almost lining the tub as well. So it makes you think a little bit differently about the relationship between the water and the tub rather than the tub holding water. The water is lining the tub or something or it's giving itself to the tub or the relationship between these things that we normally think about very without we don't think about that much that we just kind of take for granted gets changed so and i actually think that the moment the poem starts to fail is where it says or or goes tepid because that doesn't give me anything interesting again to think about with the water and now i start losing kind of I, I kind of start losing the purchase or losing the spark of what's happening in this like interrelationship.
0: I think you're describing the potential of this first pair of lions very accurately in terms of relationships. What I would like to see happen in this poem is picture, you have two analogies and then you set them up as analogous to each other. So you've got this relationship between water and porcelain in these first two lines, and then you could set up another parallel relationship in the next two lines, and the architecture of the two analogies would be analogous to each other.
1: So fundamentally a kind of like larger version of kind of the relationship that's happening in the in a station of the metro. Two units kind of rubbing up against each other that we're supposed to kind of like see through one into the next.
0: Yes, I think that's a very precise way of putting it. What I'd like to see is the meta game of the game in the previous poem enacted in this one. But that's not what I see. And you know, we've talked a lot about very fragmented lines and very fragmented images. You could think of that as I'm going to describe a particular image in a very idiosyncratic way where I'm not going to describe its most salient features from the perspective of a general audience or a common day context. I'm going to describe its most salient features in the context of this metaphor that it's going to be part of. I'm going to tell you about the crowd in the Metro in such a way that you only see the aspects of this image that are most salient for its kinship to the image on the second line, the bow?
2: One of the things that makes me think of is that in this poem, I think part of the problem is whatever is happening in the first two lines is completely overpowered by a gloss provided in the third line. So when it says, so is the slow cooling of our chivalrous passion. So like any you know, of the interest and dynamism that Asia was drawing out in those first two lines, where you have, you know, porcelain layered onto something else that's presumably cheaper that the rest of the tub is made of, and water, highly malleable, moving along the porcelain. And, you know, implicitly, we know the water is going tepid, so we don't need to be told that. So I think you're right that the problem starts there. And then by the time it says, so is the slow cooling, then it's like the only thing that we have for the rest of the poem is, yeah, bathwater. It gets cool. And when the rest of the poem is so kind of like knowing and over and ironized, it feels like we don't get the kind of analogy or meta-analogy that Isaac is interested in where we're really getting um, trained to look at a, at, a, at a simile in a very particular way.
1: I like what you said, Sean, that the weight of that last line kind of overpowers everything that came before. It kind of asks you to quickly paraphrase everything that happened previously, rather than asking you to go back and more carefully study what happened before. It feels like once you have the last line, there's no need to go back anymore. Um, And I wonder if maybe that's a way to kind of think about why this this poem doesn't quite work as a short poem because it doesn't ask you to keep reading it. It kind of feels like you read it just to get to the punchline.
0: It's as if the Keats poem just gave us the warmth of life and the cold of death and then stopped there. Yeah. that would yeah. just be a heap of planks rather than the structure that emerges. A, a way of thinking yeah. about it might be that... Uh, you have to present an analogy or meta-analogy that's not self-evident, and the cooling water versus cooling passion analogy is overly received. Everybody knows that these are two common expressions and two common experiences, and there's none of that... Here we go. What you'd ideally like to happen with the relationship between... The two nodes that a very short poem gives you is a mirroring of the fragmented or pared down or alighted feel that the individual images have, where rather than a full description of their salient features, you get a description of the salient features that matter in the context of the metaphor. You want the emergent analogy or meta-analogy to feel teared down and alighted to the point that you can't necessarily a hundred percent get to grips with it. It's not entirely self evident why these faces that are emergent or appearing in the crowd are like the blossoms on the black bough. You can run that metaphor because it's self evident enough to run but you can't necessarily paraphrase why it works. Whereas in this failed Pound Imagist poem, you absolutely can. You can draw a flowchart or an algebraic equation for why this telegraphed punch is supposed to work, and that's precisely why it doesn't work. And I am I am still standing. I have not been knocked over. <laughs>
2: That was that was an impressive monologue. Yeah, really. Like, Jesus. <laughs> I do like the idea of flowcharts of failed images poems. <laughs> I think there's a McSweeney's piece in there if you want it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> flowcharts charts of failed images poems. Um I think that's what poems, we call by
0: like. Isaac Wheeler. <laughs> poems by
1: Isaac
0: Wheeler. That was a running joke we had of lines that became titles of people's putative collections for those of you at home. Do we wanna uh, Parting
1: shots I, about short poems.
0: I think we kind of got to a good ending note. I think somebody just needs to charmingly say, "Well, we've started devolving, so we yeah. better cut here." <laughs> yeah, more charming than I.
2: I mean, it, it's it's I, 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 I don't want to pretend that I'm more charming than Anastasia. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: all right. Well, poetry doesn't end; it devolves. Um. I think we're going to end this, though, and you can leave the devolution to your imagination.
2: Yeah, it's going to get a lot worse.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Tune in next time, kids.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Bye. Bye.